Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? I'm looking forward to two things this summer, getting back to the ballpark with my kids and getting the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow back on the calendar. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All we need you to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There is no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow in your community, reach out and let's have a conversation today. Hi, Gretchen. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. You and I have spent about the last 10 minutes just getting each other all stirred up. Uh, I have no idea where this conversation is going to go, and probably about halfway in, we might go in some other strange and unusual place, uh, but I'm sure it'll be fun, and I'm sure our listeners will appreciate it. But before we go on that adventure, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Jason, thanks. I'm excited for this journey. Uh, My name is uh, Gretchen Cologne, and I have been on the front line as a fundraiser for the last 15 years and now working as a consultant for two years, uh, partnering and walking alongside nonprofit leaders and development directors uh, in their journey. And so um, I just am drawing from lots of different uh, strengths and challenges that I had working on the front line uh, at a a mid-sized nonprofit. 
Okay, so let's go theoretical here for a minute before we dive into whatever your big idea or bold opinion is. What is the itch to move into consulting? So I, I'm a lot like you. So we, we, we do fundraising. Perhaps we do it for 10 or 15 years. But there is an itch. There's, there seems to be this itch to get into consulting. Why do you think that is? I would say I didn't have an itch, but uh-huh. I kind of uh, fell into it yeah. and fell in love with the call of helping people. Okay. Uh, helping people just uh, uncover that challenge that they've had in, in their nonprofit um, or that uh, uncovering that big, bold idea uh, to get some great results. And yeah. so um, I, I just I think I fell into it and now just um, am, called, uh, am called to help some of those professionals um, take that journey. Yeah, I would probably use that word itch interchangeably <laughs> with that desire to help, because I think yeah. I think you see a lot of people who do the work like you and I have done. We spend 10, 15 years or whatever, do, which is exactly what sort of my path was doing high touch major gift sort of work really getting your head wrapped around how the relationship needs to work between the t- between the fundraiser and the donor and then and then you sort of look out into the world and you see okay there's a lot of other organizations out there that if I could sort of just distribute this confidence to um that that isn't rocket science i mean is that part of what it is 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 part of it that 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 what we're doing is really just sort of building up their confidence and sort of getting them excited about what what we've spent perhaps 10, 15 years doing ourselves? Yeah, Jason, I I go back to when I started in fundraising and I I walked into an organization uh, that was sending one appeal letter a year. Yeah. (laughs) And and just uh, sitting back and letting the phone ring. And and, uh, sad to say this, there were stacks of unanswered phone call you know, message memos on the desk when I started and my heart broke um, because those those relationships weren't being nurtured. Um, And so I uh, worked alongside the executive director at that organization to pretty much take the organization from uh, ground zero uh, to flying and, and building their culture of generosity. And so um, I, I learned a lot from that journey. Um, I was not a fundraiser before that. I had sure. just fallen into the profession. I don't think anyone grows up and says, oh, I want to be a fundraiser when I grow up. Uh, we're called to this uh, just profession um, to build relationships. And and I am called to be a fundraiser and build relationships and, and nurture um, those individuals. And so my journey began sitting on the floor of that office and digging through the donor records and pulling out letters and reading them to understand the relationships of that community with uh, the organization. And I sat on the floor and I said, uh, God, I have no idea what you have in store, but this organization needs a lot of help. And I hope I'm the one that can take it to the next level. And and I'm open to all these amazing relationships that I get to build over the next uh, years. And I hope that I can unleash the culture of generosity here. And and sure enough, uh, 12 years later, that happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah, it, it's, it's, I think there's a, I think there's a generation of people out there like you and I, who've done this long enough, but we're also sort of exhausted with sort of the tips and tricks and um, some of the package sort of solutions that are out there. And um, 
And so, and so, uh, one of the things I, I'm constantly saying here on the podcast, and I've written about this, is the notion of sort of thinking more carefully and critically about what it is we do, sort of in our posture and the posture. So the posture of the people who are sort of in the advisory roles and the posture of those who are the practitioners on the front line. Um, Gretchen, we ask our guest, the person in your seat, to come on with a big idea or bold opinion. I don't always know what those things are, and sometimes our guests change them midway. Um, what do you got for us today? I don't know. Jason, I was reading uh, in June about the report that was released uh, from one of the the consulting firms, and that was that you know, fundraisers are turning over at rapid rates. And they also shared in the report that one out of eight fundraisers think that their executives and board are actively involved in fundraising. And that stat just stuck with me. Um, I'm struggling with that. And I think the bold idea in fundraising is that we need to change our thoughts and our actions around how our executive leadership is involved in fundraising uh, today, whether that is the executive director or whether that is the board uh, collectively. And and I want to say that with I'm coming from the thoughts around um, a mid-sized organization, a small nonprofit, maybe not necessarily you know higher education. I have the view of that mid-sized nonprofit and where there's not a lot of staff. Uh, where there aren't a lot of resources and the board and the executive director's skill sets have to be unleashed in order to help take that organization to the next level. So uh, let's start real high level at that. Is is part of your critique, which may be shared with mine, or, or, or perhaps we can align on this point, is, is part of what you're saying that we have, um, let, let me make sure I'm phrasing this right, have we unnecessarily sort of shifted a lot of responsibility to the board oftentimes um, largely because we just don't want to sort of step up to the plate or we're fearful of stepping up to the plate or is somebody else? Because that's one of the things I sort of picked up on early in my career is there was a lot of this fundraising professionals, executive directors, all, all of them, all the people on the payroll were constantly sort of critiquing and directing blame to the board for everything that was wrong with the organization. And then at the same time, I saw all these, or I saw all these leaders going, you know, going to professional development and going, getting their graduate degrees. And so they were, they were sort of professionalizing while at the same time, blame shifting all of the problems of the organization to the board. And I was like, okay, there's an incompatibility and inconsistency here. If you're going to step up to the plate and tell me what, tell me that you know what the hell you're doing, perhaps you need to stop blaming it on people who maybe don't. Is that kind of what you're getting at? I agree, Jason. I, I think we need to stop pointing the finger at each yeah, other. Yeah. And, right, and maybe right. we need to sit on the same side of the table and have a little empathy uh, for. Uh, the other, because maybe we're not really clearly understanding what both roles are uh, really articulating. Yeah. And and just I've heard the same thing from development directors, you know, uh, stories of I don't feel like I'm heard. Um, I'm I'm I don't feel like I'm being helped or I don't I, I think my executive director or the board is just comfortable where they're at. Hey, I want to grow. Um, but but they're comfortable at staying, you know, kind of status quo in the organization. And from the board board standpoint, yeah. um, I've sat in 
board meetings and talked with board members and they're like, I don't have any more bandwidth to help the organization, or I only feel that I can contribute this much time or energy. Um, you know, as I've done, uh, connected with an organization just recently, I interviewed the board and I said, Hey, what's holding you all back from fundraising? And the board said, uh, well, one COVID and number two, um, we're not asking people for money. Yeah. And and that was that was the the direct, you know, answer from a board member. And so they are they're articulating it, too. So I, I think we need to have empathy and sit on each side of the table and listen to one another first. If. OK, so we've got all, we've got all these board members and we're so, so my uh, when I wrote my first book, for example, I very deliberately opted not to address the board issue because I didn't want to in any way make a case or not make a case for sort of continuing the narrative that you and I are sort of picking on here. I felt like I, I've long been of the opinion that people in the advisory seats like you and I are in. So, you know, people who are sort of privileged to be sort of at the front of the room, whether it's in front of a, you know, in a board development seminar or up on a platform or something like that, have in some ways directed all the attention to this very messy, complex group of individuals, volunteers for whom they really don't have a lot of control, don't have a lot of influence in, and who are, quite frankly, have full-time jobs in other parts of the, you know, world, right? But by do by putting all of our attention on them... By putting all of our attention on them, you almost aren't going to go anywhere, right? Like, so if I constantly say our fundraising problems are board related, you can pretty much assume that a year from now, as long as you're sort of keeping that narrative going, as long as you keep sort of saying that, it's not going to change. A year later, you're still going to be saying our fundraising isn't going anywhere and it's our board's fault. But I think that's a story, Gretchen. I think that's a story that our that our experts have been telling for way too long. Mm. What's your thoughts on that? I go back to my uh, frontline experience, Jason, yeah. and uh, during my time there, we I I was one. I was a shop of two individuals. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I knew that. Uh, the organization needed to unleash the generosity. And the only way that that we could do that is to use this the gifts and skills of the board, the rest of the staff. Sure. And so I, I came to the table and said, look, we need some help. Um, I, I, I can't write you know, every single you know, thank you letter. Would you be willing to take one every couple months yeah, yeah, uh, sure. and, and send something or, um, Hey, uh, I don't have a, a massive network. I know you all do. Would you be willing to open the door one time, uh, for, you know, to help out in this effort? And slowly people realized that it, it was easy to do that. We, this, the, the staff behind the scenes, I feel like I was a coach yeah, as right. well as, playing on the field at the same time. And so uh, kind of facilitating that, that help uh, unleashed the entire organization to raise funds and unleashed the entire organization to raising $3.5 million in five months because we had a construction timeline that needed to be met and funds needed to help 
with that. And the only way uh, that I could do that as a fundraiser is to to get the help of others within the the organization. And so slowly individuals started, hey, I want to be part of that. Hey, I want to help. Hey, I want to walk alongside uh, the organization because, man, this is a winning team. And I, I want to be part of that something bigger than than myself. And so um, those those board members stepped up to the plate. And and I, I'll give you another example. I was organizing a fundraising event and the board chair called and said, hey, I'm just checking in to see how you're doing today. Uh, what's happening? And I go, oh, man, we're decorating. We're, you know, we've got stuff all over. We, we're expecting 300 people tonight. We ran out of Christmas lights to decorate, you know, the stage. And guess what? Two hours later, he showed up in the parking lot with a box of Christmas lights so that we could finish uh, the event. And so um, I'm not saying that boards need to get into the minutia, but man, hands on deck sure help move the mission forward, uh, help move nonprofits um, thrive, help get results uh, fast. But, but, but what, what, in that same scenario there, so the way you sort of describe the way that the, the, the roles that the board members are playing, the board member there is not the person showing up at the lunch table asking for a $50,000 gift. I think that's the confusion. Do, do we need to better define what you just described, sort of all hands on deck, and oftentimes what I call lane one fundraising? It's that sort of the, it's those yeah. places where those initial gifts sort of happen, versus those places where fifty thousand dollars are solicited solicited from Mrs. Smith, for example. I think we have this assumption that you can put don't uh, board members just like we think we can put everybody in all of these multiple lanes. And I think what you just described is a board member in the right seat. And I think too often we also think that you can sort of when, when we get into the blame game, when the when the payroll's not being met and what you really need is a fifty thousand dollar check, that's the job of the fundraiser who's on the payroll. And you can't start pointing the finger at the board for not being at that yeah. lunch table. I mean, I agree with that, Jason. Yeah, um, yeah, sure. We, we, we got to build those relationships to be able to solicit those major gifts or the $50,000 gift or that legacy gift that's going to take several three to four to five meetings um, with the professional fundraiser in, in order to really, um, really nurture that gift in order to deliver it um, for, for some great use to the organization. Um, I, I agree with you know, the fundraiser has to be um, at that uh, level in order to also sustain uh, the, the organization. But they need some help as well. Yeah, yeah. Does the, um, wh where, do you, where do you think all this is going to go in the future? Because when, when I think about, when I think about some of the board dynamics that we have been talking about, you, you, you and I are, you, you and I are younger um, and, and we sort of came into the, you and I both came into the sort of the nonprofit sector at the beginning of the 21st century. And I think a lot of our assumptions are sort of based on the second half of the 20th century. And a lot of our leadership has been sort of focused, board leadership, for example, has been focused around uh, baby boomers. Well, the baby boomer cohort is much larger than like our generation of leaders are we even going to be able to have as many board members on these boards? I mean, unless they're all going to be younger millennials and younger, because I, I don't care. I don't necessarily care what they're doing. I don't care, you know, how much money they're raising, what roles they play. 
I just don't know if there's going to be that many people. When I started at my last employer, we had like 12 or 15 people on that board. It wasn't hard to keep that board full, but they were all baby boomers and older. I don't think yeah, you could, we I don't had think 25 you get, people, Jason. What's that? <laughs> we had a 25 right, person board. <laughs> right. And we had a, actually, it's funny you mentioned the 25 because we had a local, we had exactly, we had an organization that was down the street from the school that I worked at that was a health, you know, health education center. And they were notorious for the biggest board in town. But, but they had this generate the, the, the demographics of their board aligned with this very large cohort of, basically our civilization, the, the, the baby boomers are a huge cohort of people in our country right now. But as they sort of phase out of the workplace and consequently phase off of our board, I don't know if those of us that would consider ourselves sort of Gen Xers are necessarily going to sign up in droves. And there's just not as many as many of us to do that. You're going to have half as many board members. It just seems like the, the, the expectations are going to have to change. Am I right? Yeah, I agree. The the next generation, um, you know, coming into board service, right? Um, the, the, these nonprofits may have to evaluate the the fundraising resources that they have in depth um, to help spread the load. There, I mean, the, some of these mid sized organizations may not be able to uh, sustain with you know one or two half person shops. Um, they may need to have two uh, individuals serving in that fundraising capacity with a significant amount of experience to help uh, really spread the load across um, the organization. Because you're right, as these boards change, individuals may not have the bandwidth of time like like they did in the past uh, to serve. Uh, They may only have the bandwidth to uh, do four quarterly meetings and open some doors and uh, connect with a few uh, folks. But I think maybe it's being laser focused on how we're going to use the board. And to your point earlier, developing those roles and responsibilities for both individuals so folks are clear on that um, will help stop the turnover of fundraising, uh, perhaps, because then the fundraiser understands their their role. They also understand how the the board's going to help uh, in this effort as well. Okay, so I gotta, I gotta, we gotta pick on that one because we we started yeah. talking about board members, but in, in before we hit the record button, you were talking, you mentioned something about turnover. What is sort of your, uh, and that may become the bulk of our conversation because I'm 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 very much opinionated and I'm very interested in your because I think you and I sync up a lot. <laughs> I want to know what your take is on all this turnover because that's that's actually what's being when, when I if 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 you and I hang up, we go look on social media right now, we thumb through LinkedIn. There's yeah. going to be a ton of conversations about fundraising turnover, and it's not going to be so much fundraising turnover. It's going to be about turnover in general in sort of the marketplace as a whole. So how are we solving that problem? Hmm. That, that's a really solid uh, question, Jason, because you're right. If you thumb through LinkedIn, we're looking at the great resignation. I mean, you're seeing lots of articles Yes, it's all uh, about over the place. Individuals just resigning from their positions. Um, I, you know, I, I think that if we were to dig into that, and some of the studies have, it's individuals not being heard, uh, not feeling like, uh, you know, they have help, uh, not having the amount of resources that it takes to hit those goals, to hit those fundraising numbers that the organization needs in order to make that mission move forward. 
Um, and, and perhaps some of its leadership, uh, you know, that resignation is happening. Uh, some of our organizations still have that hierarchical leadership, uh, you know, top down and, and the organizations that are having more adaptive leaders and uh, collaborative and co-creating those solutions uh, seem to be, you know, keeping more people at the table, keeping um, more individuals from resigning because uh, their story is different at their organization. Uh, I think that we need to have that in our nonprofit sector as well. Uh, you know, that collaboration style, that adaptive leadership, it, we, we need to call the sector to move forward in our leadership style so that we can continue to impact our communities um, we don't all, everyone, leaders don't have to have all the answers, but when they come to the table and bring uh, those that can help, uh, we can build the best answer, the best transformational result, uh, the best uh, solution um, when we empower those that, that are within our organizations. And I think that doesn't happen a whole lot. Um, how many times do you have a leader say in our vol- vulnerable, like Brianna Brown calls us to be and say, I don't have all the answers, but let's create this together because I, I think the answer is within this room right here. Let, let's do that. Let's move this organization forward. Okay, go back to that. Go back to that 25 member board because it sounds like you know a 25 member board. And it sounds like I know a 25 member board. Is there a correlation between the size of that board and the turnover in some way? Could that, could that, I got to say, that's in my mind, depending on the. (laughs) There's a lot of chiefs. (laughs) Right, 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 exactly. Is there a. There's a a lot of chiefs sitting around that table. (laughs) Yes. Is there a correlation? Is, to me, that seems like a ridiculously large board. And I'm sure there's somebody out there who's going to say that's a perfectly sized board. But if that's a, let's just say, okay, for the sake of conversation, if that's a ridiculously sized board with an, just a, quite frankly, just a ridiculous sort of level of expectations coming from people who perhaps have just this extreme diversity of opinion about how fundraising really works. Is that in some way why these, you know, because they are the quote unquote top, is that some of the reason why these people are turning over? Is, is it sort of, is sort of this trickle down effect that's coming from the dynamic that you create around the board table? You don't have this sort of shared common understanding of how this is supposed to work. And consequently, you've got this one individual or this very small advancement team and fundraising team that just can't keep up with all those expectations. And the executive director is just sort of stuck in the middle, sort of maybe in some ways uh, implicitly sort of pitting the the two of them against each other. (laughs) Isn't that a little dark? But I mean, is that what's happening? Wow, that's bold. Yes. Uh, You know, you bring a 25 person board uh, to a table and there's a lot of chiefs uh, sitting at the table. Uh, um, They have a lot of opinions. They have a lot of goals. They have a lot of expectations of the staff and the, you know, stakeholders in the community. Um, I would say that might be a thread common to some of the turnover uh, that's happening. if a fundraiser is listening to all 25 of those expectations, which one do we pick and which one are we supposed to kind of go after? Rather than I think, Jason, uh, perhaps the board needs to turn to the fundraiser and say, you know what, you're the one that's talking to every single donor 
stakeholder, uh, you know, just you have an intuition uh, that might be a different perspective than what we all have because you've sat in the living rooms with these folks. Uh, share your share your thoughts. Um, what what are some of the donors sharing with you about their passions that we need to think about? Okay, um, you got to unpack so- that. Okay, I bet in my entire twenty five year career in the fundraising in in fundraising in particular, I mean my whole career is. I bet I have heard that nugget of wisdom less. I can't even count it on my on my one hand. I've heard that before. That the board, that twenty, that ridiculously large board, needs to turn to the fundraiser and say, "Tell us how this works." But I bet I've only heard that five times. Why is that? That's a powerful question. Well, that's what I do. <laughs> right. That's it's, a powerful. It, it's, question. it's not supposed to be. This isn't supposed to be a show where we just talk about. Well, Shallow, 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 silly stuff. But you're also sort of. I'm supposed to keep you on your toes, so. I think that perhaps uh, that has to do with um, I like to read Richard Rohr, Rohr, Rohr uh-huh, uh-huh, and yeah. um, his his second half of life um, thoughts and, you know, us living in first half of life thoughts, you know, uh, we're thinking through like, what do we, what do we have in this for ourselves? And, yeah. you know, our egos and building our career. Yeah. Uh, maybe we don't have enough leaders that are in the second half of their lives turning to others to say, hey, you might have a thought about this. What is it? How do we make those you know, solutions? And, and growing ourselves as people to be able to do that. Uh, maybe there aren't enough board members sitting at the table that are within their second half of life journey to have the intuition to ask that fundraiser, what are you hearing in those living rooms? Right. Okay. So it's know. a tape. Right. So what you're saying is, in between the lines of what you're saying is, is that that in going back to that that if it's a if it's a quote unquote twenty for twentieth century board board, it's a table of experts is what it is. If it's a twenty first century board, and this goes back to some of the stuff we were talking about, but, but before we hit the record button, if it's perhaps a twenty first century board. We're we might as fundraising professionals be at a place where we actually start having board members say, "Look, I don't know how to do this. You tell me how." And if we as fundraisers don't sort of wake up to the idea that let's let's say the yeah people don't like you throwing the millennial term around, but but we'll say it. Let's say you've got a board of millennials now who are much more willing to say, okay, you're the professional in the room. You tell me how to do this. Gretchen, are fundraisers willing to step up to the plate and sort of assume that role in a way that they haven't thus far been given permission to do? That could actually be quite exciting, but that's actually- I was just going to say, that's exciting. (laughs) That excites me. Uh, That excites me that, wow, uh, fundraisers can express their calling, uh, you know, their, their servanthood, uh, in this new opportunity. Uh, and boy, the transformation that could happen. Uh, I don't know that I could paint the picture big enough, Jason, uh, as we envision that, that next board leadership, that next 
uh, executive director leadership. And I, I, I really believe that you don't have to have the title to be a leader. You can be, you can be a leader, whether you're sitting at the front desk of a nonprofit or you're the fundraising expert. Um, wow, that's powerful. Okay. So Gretchen, what, what generally happens in these conversations, once we get warmed up, we finally feel, we finally realize it about a half hour and what the hell we're actually talking about. What we're basically taught, what it, what it sounds like is emerging from this conversation is the possibility that the 21st century board might actually allow fundraisers to step up to the plate and play the rightful role that they should be playing. Is that what yeah. we're basically suggesting? Yes. Okay. I'm, so unru- I'm calling- un- unru- unravel that for us. I'm calling the nonprofit sector to take a, a journey on that. Uh, to maybe let their guard down and stop controlling everything and and see how we can fly as fundraisers. Yeah. Uh, wow. And and man, Jason, to look long term, not just you know what's happening in the next six months, but what's the framework for the for the next twenty five years in fundraising? Wow, we've laid a great foundation, but how do we take it to the next level? Um, you know, and I and I think that. As we envision the board to let those fundraisers fly and and listen to them within the organizations, um, their intuition can do some marvelous things that we may not have even thought about. Right. Um, so some of the turnover. It. So some of the some of the turnover could, uh, that we're seeing in the space, because the the marketplace, the labor market, I think has th- there are times and places where the labor market has very natural sort of turnover. And some of what we could be seeing and experiencing is that as the organizational design and what is expected of the executive director and what is expected of the board changes, we may see a continued level of evolution and that consequently um, turnover because you've got fundraisers who are now given the rightful roles that they want to have or should have always been given to have. But maybe fundraisers have historically never like I have always been of the mm. opinion. I have always been of the opinion that fundraisers should not uh, some we, we, we I have always been of the opinion. I got to be careful with how I say this. Um, I've always been of the opinion that, that fundraisers unnecessarily take a, a more humble role than they have to. Like, I think they ought to be at the leadership table and I think they ought to be sort of asserting themselves more. But the organizational design of the organization marginalizes them. It pushes them in a corner. It pushes them down the hall. It makes them an unnecessary evil. And so it it does all of this stuff. And so consequently, when we talk about this 21st century board, maybe the 21st century board and the 21st century executive director isn't going to perceive fundraisers the same way. And maybe they're going to perceive them in a more healthier light. Yeah, I I would say uh, one of the successes of the organization where I served on the front line was, is that I was at the table. I was at the table as the fundraiser. The the it, I was at the executive committee table. Yes. I was at the finance committee table. I was at the governance table, and I was at the full board table. I heard the internal conversations, which helped me much. navigate those relationships within the community ten times better 
than if I were in the dark. And so I think that is, Jason, an attribute that needs to happen. The fundraiser must be at the table. But we as fundraisers need to step up to the plate and voice um, our um, intuition that we have about the community, about our stakeholders, about the donors, uh, about those that we are building deep, meaningful relationships with. Okay, um, let, let's we've let, got to step up to the plate. <clears throat> okay, so let's let's spend the rest of this conversation unraveling why you were. What was it about that organization that allowed you to be at all those tables? I think there was a level of trust, perhaps, uh, uh-huh. with myself and the organization. Uh, uh-huh. And and I had to build being invited to those tables, uh, I think. That just didn't come uh, right off the bat. Um, that happened over time. And, and I grew as a leader. I grew as a fundraiser. I grew as um, I grew in my calling of fundraising. And so I was invited to those tables to, one, listen uh, to uh, lend, um, you know, my insight into some of the conversations that were happening. And I'm, I, I am grateful that the organization allowed me as a fundraiser to sit, sit at those tables and, and, uh, be part of those conversations. Um, I think that was a huge asset to the organization. Who made that work the most? Was it more of you having the confidence and the competence to be at that table or was it the willingness of the board and the executive to permit you to be there? I think it was both. Um, I, I, I grew as an, uh, I would say an entry level, you know, fundraiser at the organization to, uh, a more mature fundraiser. So yeah. perhaps in my personal growth and yeah. uh, just uh, Jason, I take advantage of every single continuing education, sure. you know, workshop that I can and, you know, go to those things. So perhaps through that, they saw my growth. But I think number two, uh, the board, as the organization was walking through several areas, one, we were rebranding. Uh, we were going through a capital campaign. Uh, we were, you know, really designing a master plan for the next 25 years at, um, mm-hmm. of the community. Mm-hmm. And I was also the chief communicator of the organization. Mm-hmm. And so I think that they knew having me sit at that table was important so that those that information could be disseminated when the time was right to the appropriate people and to navigate that. And so I, I think the board also said, you know, we got to have her sitting at the table during this this time, um, during this these growth periods of the organization. What, what, was it was it a particularly diverse board in any sort of by by any definition? I would say no. Okay. <laughs> um, di- diverse in that I will say it is like. Um, I mean, diversity can, diversity can mean a lot of different things. So um, perhaps they didn't sort of they didn't they didn't they didn't pass the the perhaps our our diversity equity inclusion sort of test or something. Yeah. But did, did did diversity work in any particular? Was diversity reflected in any particular way? Diversity was reflected in profession, mm-hmm. uh, geographic location yeah. where the person was living. Yeah. Uh, diversity was reflected uh, in uh, age gem- demographics. Uh, yes. Um, was there more women? So there were, was, what about women? Were there a lot of women around the table? Uh, not a lot. No. Oh, okay. That's interesting. <laughs> so I will say that that was a struggle being a very young female leader. Yeah. 
yeah. uh, in the organization. And being, uh, I'll use it in Patrick Lanchoni's uh, yeah. words, humble, hungry, and smart. Gosh, we read it. We <laughs> read a lot of the, We read a lot of the really... similar. We read a lot of similar stuff. I really yeah. like that. <laughs> So no, no, I would say I was a young female sitting at the table. Um, uh, that was that was a struggle to navigate uh, during that that you know during my service. During did they my know time. you were okay? Here, here's a way to ask the question. Here's another way to. Did they know you were a rock star? Did they think you were a rock star? I'm I'm just trying to. I think I think we're. I think perhaps we're on to something, which will probably be the title of this podcast. Is can the 21st century give? Can the 21st century board give 21st century fundraisers the opportunity to really step up to the plate and play the role that they want to? And it sounds like perhaps some your the board your board your board relation sort of experience maybe is lacking some of the pieces that we would want it to have, but in some ways perhaps it has some of the right pieces. Yeah. I would say I would say yes, they acknowledged my skill set, my calling. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh that I, I don't want to call myself a rock star because I, I feel like I still have a lot to learn. <laughs> but, but you know, and I'm hu- humble about uh, my journey and I'm humble about I, I have a whole lot of things, you know, a whole lot more books on my desk that I want to get through before I could say that I'm an expert. Did um, they did they I, know that? Did they know that the, did they know that you were a learner? Did they know that you were destined to learn or determined to learn? And to be good at what you were doing. And so consequently, that's what afforded you. Because that would be some of my critique in the fundraising space. When I think of, I think some of our fundraising professionals out there plateau. Um, They sort of have a fixed mindset. Fundraising works this way. They become experts relatively quickly. They attach a CFRE next to themselves. And all of a sudden, they can just literally play that card for the rest of their career. I don't know if that's the person that you were sitting around that board, sitting at that board table. No, I, I constantly, I'm a lifelong learner. Uh, I am a, I'm a, I'm someone who's going to dig in and, and want to take the next, uh, workshop, uh, want to figure out, you know, what that next, uh, solution is, you know, to read lots of books. And, and I, I believe wholeheartedly that it's just, you know, I have a lot of fundraising books on my table, but I have a whole lot of, uh, industry books sitting because I think we can learn from others just as much as we can learn from our profession. And, uh, to answer your question, Jason, I don't know if they knew that I was a lifelong learner. I don't know that I ever you know, really articulated that and yeah. and named it and claimed it, but perhaps I lived it out in my calling by sharing the books that I read and the things that I've learned and the workshops that I've gone to. But maybe as fundraisers, we need to do a little bit more sharing in that regard, uh, sharing about the resources that are out there as we're we're learning. Did the so let's okay. So the elephant in the room is what about the executive director role? So you had an executive director between you. Yes. Okay. So talk to us about that role. Who was that person, and what sort of leader were they? And perhaps that's part of the missing link in the sort of the evolving, emerging theory we've got here on the podcast today. I think this the CEO role is someone who has to partner with the fundraiser. Uh, who is in lockstep, uh, he or she in lockstep with the fundraiser. Sure. And the stronger that partnership is, 
the more successful the organization uh, can be and thrive. And, um, you know, I've just gone to I've gone to some trainings and workshops that consulting firms have put on. And I think, Jason, this is another area that we've just got to get a handle on is how do we develop that partnership even more than what we're doing today? Uh, How do we authentically get that those two positions to be in lockstep? Uh, with with one another. Uh, and I think you're exactly right. And that's what a lot of these studies, if you think about all the way back to the under, uh, undeveloped, uh, underdeveloped study that we all read several, several years, 2013, I think it was. If you go back to that study, you know, one of those findings at the end, one of the recommendations at the end was that if we can sort of get the those two relationships to, to sort of sync up. But when I think about some of my sort of misadventures in the land of being a professional fundraiser, I can think back on I had board members that were willing in many cases to um, engage with me. I was invited to the table. I participated in board meetings, et cetera, et cetera. But in some cases, I don't know that uh, I don't know that me and the executive director necessarily had this shared understanding how of how it all fit together. So in some ways, I think the board actually, uh, if, if I was to sort of chron- you know chronicle all the in, the employers I had, it would probably be that I actually benefited from relatively sharp boards, but not always relatively sharp and sort of on their game sort of executive directors. Let me say this. If I were ever an executive director in an organization, yeah, um, I would want to build a strong relationship with that fundraiser. Yeah. Uh, I would want to be in lockstep with them. Uh, I would have just, uh, you know, weekly conversations to understand where that person's you know, head was, how they were learning, you know, the steps that they were taking, the conversations that they were having in the community and being humble to say, hey, what can I do for you to make your uh, calling easier at this organization, your role as the fundraiser? What can I do for you to uh, make you uh, successful Um, and unleash those resources, whatever those are to, you know, make that person uh, successful? I would I think that in the 21st century nonprofit has is imperative. Uh, we've got to take that step um, to to be the to be that CEO and ask that fundraiser what are the resources that you need in order to be successful and have uh, the faith in the person that they're going to make the right decisions as you build those relationships to bring those resources to the table to move the mission forward. Okay. Something, something occurs to me as we wrap up is some of this and it, and it, and it sort of springs off of the, your, that last comment there. Cause when you talk about having faith, you're basically taught when you talk about having faith in various different people, you're basically talking about also a willingness to take on risk. Was that board ba- back to the board that was allowing you to sort of sit at the table? Was that board uh, particularly comfortable with risk? Because to have you at the table might also suggest. I, I think I think boards that get fundraising right actually learn how to um, take on risk slightly differently than they perhaps approach risk in every other context of their role. 
um, like being guardians of the mission, right? Being guardians of the mission as it relates to program is one thing. And being guardians of the mission as it relates to fundraising is almost like the complete opposite. Mm. Does that make sense to you? Like you yeah. literally have to swing to the other direction. You want you you maybe want to take a uh, and this is probably the wrong use of the word, but you may want to take a more if you take a conservative uh, approach to mission delivery, you generally want to take a much more progressive or liberal sort of approach to fundraising. <clears throat> and I don't mean that in a pro- political sense, but that's just the two words that came to mind. Does that make sense? Yeah, Jason, I'll give you. A, a short little story. Okay. And that was with this board. Uh, so the organization did not have, uh, I would say, a completely successful track record at capital campaigns. The previous capital campaign that they uh, walked through, uh, they did not raise all of the resources needed in order to take on those those projects. So uh, we were walking down the path of launching a capital campaign with the organization to uh, build a wellness center and a massive swimming pool because uh, the lake where we were sitting on Lake Erie uh, had a big algal bloom happening and no one could swim. And so the board came together and uh, were in conversation about, do we launch this capital campaign or, or not? Yeah. And I would say that at that moment, uh, there was risk because uh, we weren't successful. There wasn't a, a wonderfully painted story about the the history of fundraising in the organization. The board took a risk and said, yes, let's move forward with this. And yeah. so I would say they, they risk, um, you know, just the uncertainty of whether we could be successful. Um, whether, and and I would say at that moment that they voted to take that risk to move forward, there was this, uh, magic that happened around the table that I think individuals realized that we all needed to come together as an organization to take that step in order to, uh, move this capital campaign forward, to raise the resources needed to, uh, really, uh, allocate all of the skill sets sitting there at the board table in order to uh, really have confidence that we could do this. And so I would say that that was an example of them. Yeah, we're going to take a risk on this. We're going right. to, we're going to, we're going to go for it. Yeah. 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 I bet if you, I bet if you and I took the time and we were writing a, a white paper on this, maybe that's what we'll do next. Um, yeah. <laughs> as a 21st century board, as it relates to 21st century fundraiser, I bet you risk comes up quite a bit and there's a, there's a higher level. There's a greater level of risk tolerance that I think boards historically have not been willing to take um, and in order to, and sometimes it's just a matter of the, in a, it, 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 sometimes it's just a matter of their willingness to take on sort of um, uncertainty and inability to sort of predict the future, right? I mean, in a lot of cases, I think you got board members who sit around a table and literally try to, like in their strategic planning efforts, try to predict the future. It's just not possible. And 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 what we need to be able to do is we need to be able to design fundraising strategies sort of in the midst of that uncertainty, not pretend like that uncertainty is not there. Um, sounds like you might have been working with a board that sort of got that. Mm-hmm. 
I would say, Jason, as we work in the nonprofit sector, let's just let's call these organizations to become whole organizations to, you know, not point the fingers. Let's tear down uh, these lines and and really co-create solutions, collaborate together. Yeah. Uh, just get let's get ready to lift off the sector um, yeah. into this new new horizon. And uh, let's stop splitting things up. Uh, let, let's let's stop pointing fingers. Let's stop alienating people, you know, across the lines. Um, we 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 need to move into this second half of what uh, this kind of calling is. Uh, we need to take the next uh, level of what fundraisers are called to do um, for this sector. Gretchen, we uh, lose our listeners in about an hour, and um, you and I could probably keep ourselves going. It sounds like I, even in between the lines of some of what you just said, I can probably tell that you and I are reading yet something else of similar. Um, I, I totally agree with you that the 20th century was a century of separation and that uh, we need to see more interdependence and connectedness. Um, if somebody's interested in reaching out to you, Gretchen, uh, they want to start a conversation perhaps about turnover, perhaps about uh, maybe some board development or something. How would you suggest that they do that? Uh, Jason, I'm on uh, LinkedIn. Um, I'm, I'm my, uh, my, my cell. I'll give you my cell because I use it for work is uh, <laughs> okay. 419-202-3740. And I can't wait for the conversation to start. Who do you want to, um, so anybody in consulting, I always ask this question as we, at the very, very end, um, anybody who's a consultant, I ask the question, who do you want to hear from? So the first person that takes that phone number and calls you, who's, what, 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 who is that person? What what are they? Where where are they at in the world? What are they looking for? What do they want to accomplish? What is that person? The next board chair who's mm -hmm. just uh, wanting to take their board to the next level. Yeah. Uh, to want to embrace the fundraiser in their organization and okay. learn how to listen to that person uh, with just. Um, insight, openness, and collabor in, the, in that collaborative spirit. So I can't wait to hear from the next board chair uh, that calls. I, 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 oh, I love that. That is, that is fantastic. I love that. You, you answered that question phenomenally. Thank you, uh, Gretchen. It's been a delight to have you on the podcast. You're always welcome back. I love you. Thanks. Have a great day. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing 
engaging conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. 